0: Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented to you by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. So, we have seen in the news, more than we would like unfortunately, instances of injuries, even death, to young student athletes, many in the world of college football. Uh, It's something that has has become a, a focus of attention on the part of a lot of people for a lot of reasons. Our next guest, uh, Brian Bernsett, who's Champion Magazine Associate Editor, took a look at the world of strength and conditioning coaches in college sports, especially college football, in the summer 2018 issue of Champions Magazine. And Brian joins us now to talk a little bit more about what he found, the issues that he discovered, and what is being done to deal with him. So, Brian, nice to see you, always to have you here. I, I see you every day, but it's nice to have you in a chair across from me Jack, so that we uh, can
1: engage in a conversation. Thanks here. for having me. We've done about 50 of these episodes. <laughs> so I finally decided to book myself. So, exactly. Uh, I'm glad to be here in this chair.
0: Well, it, it's, it's an appropriate time, actually, for, for us to talk about all of this. So, uh, let, me, let me start by setting the stage for some folks here. And I, I know there are a lot of people out there who might consider themselves college sports fans, but not, might not realize there's a, a difference between sports medicine, uh, athletic trainers, and strength and conditioning coaches. Right. Describe for us the, the different realms that they each operate in. Sure thanks.
1: So uh, athletic trainers, a lot of times you'll hear them referred to just as trainers, and people just think this is kind of a catch-all term. They're actually charged with uh, helping athletes rehab from injuries, make sure they recover, things like that. And they operate within the sports medicine realm under the supervision of medical doctors. So that's one side of the house. And the other, uh, particularly at major D1 programs, you're going to see the strength and conditioning coaches. And they are tasked with, we're going to get you into shape, we're going to get you in game shape, get you ready to play, make sure your body is ready to play. Uh, a lot of times at the top levels, they report to the sport coaches, um, and so they have a little bit more motivational aspect to their job, or at least so that they're perceived that that's, that should be part of their job. They get to spend a lot of time with these kids. Um they don't necessarily have medical backgrounds. A lot of them have advanced science degrees. There's a lot of exercise science that's required of the profession uh, at, at all levels. Uh, that's an expectation. But there, there are, in some places, lines of delineation between these strength and conditioning coaches and then the, the rest of the medical staff, uh, and, and that's where we're seeing some of these issues arrive.
0: All right. I'm going to come back and focus on some of those specifics that you mentioned here. But to, to set the stage for why this has become such a significant issue, one of the one of the things that jumped out at me immediately in in your article, and it was so well written and and, um, and so compelling and so thoughtful. Thank you. but one of the first things that jumped out at me is the extent of injuries and death. Talk a little bit about what your research showed you in terms of numbers?
1: Certainly. so uh, I was able to talk to some athletic trainers who've looked into this, and then there's also a few groups out there that study this and In college football alone, now this is all divisions, uh, all areas of college football. You're looking at uh, about—I'm not going to get the precise number Mm right—but it's on average since 2000, about three people a year have died Mm -hmm. in college football, Uh, and in D1 uh, accounts for about two thirds of that number, um, which is you know that's that's a relatively small proportion of the overall amount of college football. So that's where you're seeing some of these problems arise. Uh, Injury wise. You'll see in the news, you'll hear about rhabdomyolysis, which is a a, uh, pretty ugly condition where the muscle breaks down too quickly, enters the bloodstream, can damage the kidneys, uh, and it's a pretty ugly condition that can send kids to the hospital. You'll see those pop up from time to time. Some of the athletic trainers I talked to said, yeah, you know, you might see some of these in the news, but a lot of them don't go reported. They don't reach the media. And one athletic trainer I spoke to mentioned that, you know, you see a guy is out with a strained hamstring or a torn quad or has a tendon problem. Uh, he said a lot of those originate in the weight room where maybe guys are being pushed a little too hard. And this is not a, a blanket indictment of the strength and conditioning profession or all coaches. The vast majority, and I want to emphasize that, do uh, adhere to safe practices and exercise science. But there are some times where the, the culture can, can take the best of them and, and push them against their best judgment. And that's where you see these injuries and unfortunately these, these deaths that have become so common. Another element that might be surprising to folks is when you look at those deaths, uh, the
0: instance of those deaths, I'm sure my, most people would think, oh, it must be in games or it must be in contact scrimmages, but that's not what you found. When, when, it, What did you find in terms of the most dangerous
1: periods for student-athletes and these types of injuries, indeed, even death? Sure thing. So deaths, uh, I mean, you think about it now, when's the last time you saw a player pass away? Due to a big hit in the game. I mean, it's it doesn't happen, right? It used to happen long ago, but uh, rules have been put in place to really help curtail that. But a lot of, of these deaths do occur. It's preseason. It's in, when the sun is out, when it's hot. We're just getting back to campus. And we're not. Our bodies aren't ready to go, and we're we're pushed too hard too soon. And also in February, that's when it peaks too, because that's we're getting back into training programs after being away, being home for the holidays and again their bodies aren't ready and maybe they've been pushed too hard too soon. So it's in these these periods where maybe college football isn't at top of mind for everyone. It's it's these these, these workouts that people don't have their eyes on that that's when the worst of this is occurring.
0: Let me talk about the 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 profession if you will. The, the strength and conditioning coaches. And sure. again, emphasizing what you've said before and you said in your article, this is not an indictment of a profession. It, it's shining a light on some areas that need improvement right. that, that need things to be done right. for, to protect the student athletes oftentimes the the strength and conditioning coaches are outsized personalities mm-hmm. you know we we've seen them um, it, 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 on the sidelines and you you've seen you know on on uh, football broadcast doing a little feature on the strength and conditioning coach and he's usually the guy with the the, the deep voice and he's kind of out there and leading the charge and yep. firing the guys up, especially when they're doing their you know weight room trainings or doing out their sprints. Generally speaking, all right. Generally speaking, because I want to then focus on some of the other things you meant, But generally mm. speaking, what is the job? And let's let's focus on D1 football. Sure. What is the job of a strength and conditioning coach in D1 football?
1: So I actually posed that question to several that I that I spoke with, and to a person, they all said my job is to prepare people for competition, to get their bodies ready, and that any sort of motivation or mental toughness that is forged out of that arises from adhering to this carefully articulated, carefully executed workout plan. That said, I think the examples in the media you're citing, there are these outsized personalities that Maybe they approach the job a little differently. Or maybe they view, my jo- hey, my job is to motivate these kids and make them mentally tough. And I've and seen
0: that being said. I've seen that by strength and conditioning coaches saying, my job is to make them
1: tough. Right. Physically and mentally. Right. But using physical activity to harden a mind mm-hmm. is very dangerous. To, to just say, we're going to go out and run you. And push you back past whatever this limit is, whatever this breaking point might be to make you mentally tougher, that's when you run into problems. And these, some of these guys with outsized personalities that, you know, it almost sounds like a pro wrestling promo mm-hmm. when they're out there, you know, yelling at the kids and there, and there are these characters and they think that works. But on the flip side of that coin is what sort of, what sort of culture is that pointing to? Where, are you a exercise scientist that's, that's trying to push these kids along to get them ready? Or are you taking a step beyond that, and that's when maybe we could get into some dangerous territory.
0: I wonder what what the
1: players themselves think of them.
0: Did you get any sense of how the players view the roles of these strength and condition coaches? Uh,
1: through the reporting and just through a lot of research that I've done, I think that a lot of players admire these, these, these professionals because they spend so much time with them because they are... They spend are, more
0: time with them across the board on a yearly basis than they do with their position coaches, right? Definitely.
1: They don't want to let them down. They, they appreciate the motivation that they give them to get through a tough workout. So it's a fine line, right? Like some, sometimes you do maybe need to cajole or scream or yell to get a guy to finish a rep that'll make him better, but you can't go too far with it, right? Because this kid will run through a wall for you. will will we'll keep going. I know when I played high school basketball coach said get on the line and run because it was a punishment or to try to make us mentally tougher which he said was a stated goal we would do it we would do, I wanted to pass out I threw up a few times but we'd keep going right because I'm not letting coach down I trust that he's going to make me better and I'm going to be safe I just have this inherent trust and I think some of the incidents that we've seen maybe uh, that trust might be a tad misplaced
0: you mentioned something before that I thought was interesting I thought it was very interesting in your article um, we've all heard stories. Indeed, you know those of us who played in college would either were subject to or had friends subject to the notion of, all right, you know what? You didn't do what you were supposed to do. Maybe you didn't go to class when you were supposed to go to class or something. And here's the deal. You show up at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. A mm-hmm. uh, strength and conditioning coach is going to get you right mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, how does that fit in, do you think, in terms of the people you talk to, how it actually takes place and how theoretically it's supposed to take place.
1: Right. So I spoke with both of the, there's two major strength and conditioning credentialing organizations and they are tasked with, you know, setting the standards that these coaches adhere to. Um, And they both said, no, we don't recommend workouts for punishment. No physical workouts for for grades or you're unhappy with how a drill went, get on the line. Any sort of physical activity is supposed to be geared towards improvement, not as punishment. Um, Okay. They don't recommend it. But what does it happen? Is that the reality? No, obviously no. Uh, uh, I'm sure you went through it as a college football player. I know as a high school basketball player, miss a layup, we're on the line, right? And I think that that is just, that's the culture of sport. And that's a hard thing to change, right? That is so imbued into sports at all levels that it's, it'd be really hard to turn that around. But I think it's a necessary change. And I think it's one that, that people in that industry recognize and are trying to steer that culture. And a lot of that comes from the sport coaches themselves, right? There's, a lot of these workouts aren't necessarily always directed by a strength coach. They're there. That's, that's part of their job. But a lot of times, sport coaches are the ones making people run. And that was a tension that we found in, in the reporting, too, is that a strength coach might know what best judgment is here. Maybe we need to rein them back. But the sport coach wants to try to rein that extra 10% out of them when maybe it's not safe. And so that's a tension that exists in a lot of these programs, too. And again, going back to you touch base on this a little bit, but when I've talked to young student-athletes,
0: and, and I've asked them questions about their time balance and the extent of their workouts, especially off-season. I've been struck by how, almost universally, their response to me has been, I want to get pushed hard. I, mm-hmm. I want to work hard, mm-hmm. and I'll deal with my time balance. Don't take away my time to train because right. I want to get better. And the, the corollary to that is they trust— In the off-season, the strength and conditioning coaches, to push them to make them get better. Mm -hmm. So we know that that, that's the dynamic that we're dealing with. We know also, as you said, the vast majority of of, of strength and conditioning coaches do it the right way. We see some situations where apparently things or allegedly things were not done the right way. Right. So let's talk about some of the specific issues and what needs to be done about them. One of the things you mentioned before is this idea of strength and conditioning coaches are oftentimes essentially tethered to mm-hmm. the sport coach. And again, let's state D1 football. Sure. Is it? The, are they hired by the football coaches? Are they accountable to the football coaches as opposed to some other chain of command in the university structure?
1: In many cases, yes, that's the case. And and uh, talking about it with people at other levels, smaller D1 schools, D2, D3 they're typically reporting to a school administrator, maybe the medical staff, maybe some sort of sports science staff. But Big D1 football and increasingly Big D1 basketball, you're seeing this head coach who has a lot of sway and everyone, you know, really looks up to him. He's going to have use that pull to bring in his guy, right? He trusts that his guy can run his program. He's going to pull in his strength coach and his strength coaching team. And so that accountability runs just through the football program. Uh, and so that was a, a point of contention that a lot of the people in the athletic training community – oh, go ahead.
0: Somebody might, might say, what difference does it make? What, what difference does it make whether they're reporting to an associate athletic director or to a member of the medical staff or to the, the coach himself?
1: Oh, sure. So if uh, – and there was a, a – one of the athletic trainers I spoke to had a great quote in the article where he said he's seen strength coach doesn't want to make the, hey, this kid had bad grades, go do a 1,000 up-downs, right? Very hard, very, you know. How's that going to make you better? It's just pure punishment. Sport coach says I want him to go do that. If, I, if my boss is the sport coach telling me, hey, go put the kid through that, that's my job if I don't. If, if I stand up and, and draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not, no, I'm not putting him through that. Whereas if my boss is a physician or an administrator somewhere in the school or perhaps even the, the university health services, something like that, uh, then I'm empowered to say, sorry, coach, uh, that's not safe. And when I do that, I know I'm not going to be at risk for punishment, including up to losing my job. So that, that's where that distinction is particularly important.
0: What about the, the culture? Um, and you mentioned culture before. The culture of, again, we will talk about D1 football. It's, it's hard work. It it's will make you tough and then will make you tougher. Um, the, a culture that that does not embrace the notion of no, that's too much to do. Mm-hmm. When you say that's too much for them to do, it almost suggests weakness or mm-hmm. failure. Right. That did you find that culture? That culture is it is it pervasive, or is it limited? But but still, it can be destructive.
1: Uh, I think I, I can't speak for every single school, but I think it obviously does exist. And that really changing the culture is going to be, that's the key here. And I think that's what a lot of people in the strength and conditioning community, they, that's where they see if we can shift this culture away from, oh, you're not being tough if you don't do this extra dangerous run in the sun, you're being smart, then that's where we can see positive change. Uh, now, getting that change to happen, getting the football coaching community to buy in and to understand why this change is necessary, that's, that's tricky, uh, but it is at, at its core this is a cultural issue above all else.
0: I suspect some people would listen to our conversation. and They'd say, well, wait a minute. There must be a central set of rules and regulations, a central governing body that says, here's what you can do. Here's what you shouldn't be doing. So wouldn't that make this all very simple? What's the answer to that? <laughs>
1: Uh, you you'd think it would would be simple, but it is infinitely complicated. Uh, like I said earlier, there's a couple primary credentialing associations. They have different rules and different standards, and then there's a litany of others. So that... different
0: rules. Let me understand. So they're credentialing agencies for the same profession. Correct, strength and conditioning coach, and yet they have different rules and different standards. How does that happen?
1: Different barriers to inclusion, and it, it's because they the uh, it's still a relatively young profession compared to. Physicians, athletic trainers, physical therapists, things like that. Uh, it really got started only a few decades ago. And so in its infancy, it hasn't coalesced under one umbrella. I think the best example of how that can happen is athletic training. In the late 80s, they all it was scattershot like this too. They all came together. Now they're under one umbrella, licensed by states, uh, overseen by one governing body that sets standards for education, for continuing education, for best practices, things like that. And they all adhere to those. And that helps uh, inform the NCAA on what standards to set. Strength and conditioning hasn't gotten to where athletic training got. I think it was 1989 when they they reached that agreement and started to be licensed by states. Um, And so what you're left with is kind of a scattershot set of rules and standards. um, And the argument amongst some in the medical community is that they need to go a similar route. They may be considered coaches, but they really have such, so much influence over medical aspects, uh, sports science, that they need to go the route of other fe- comparable fields like that. What
0: about the NCAA? Does the NCAA have a role to play in, in this area?
1: Uh, it does, and it has started to make inroads. It brought uh, the two primary credentialing bodies together last summer. Uh, for a meeting. It it helped facilitate a meeting there where all three bodies tried to get on the same page on what next steps can we take. And what they came out of there is they're all uh, listing their coaches who carry those credentials uh, on one database. So if I'm an athletics director and I'm thinking about making a hiring decision, or if I want to check my credentials uh, of who's already under my employ, I can go on that database and verify and see what credentials they hold, and and then I can understand what they had to do to get them. Uh, And then more importantly, that uh, meeting helped uh, facilitate the creation of this new best practices document that it's currently being uh, revised and reviewed, uh, and it's going to target those transition periods we mentioned earlier when you're coming back to campus, how to prevent, what to do to prevent, and in the cases of heat stroke or exhaustion, it's any catastrophic injuries tied to conditioning, it's really targeting that. There's no NCAA-endorsed document currently that exists. Uh, But this will be the first of its kind in that regard. Uh, The strength and conditioning conditioning credentialing bodies are on board. Uh, It's going to be vetted by our Sports Science Institute, our membership, and uh, as well as major uh, scientific organizations, medical organizations. That review process will take about a year. And then uh, the last I've heard is next year that that document will be released and members can do with it what they will. So
0: uh, my follow-up question to you is what sort of impact – does that document have? Is that viewed as a a hard set of rules and regulations or will it be viewed as merely an advisory?
1: So it's not uh, legislation with legislative penalties tied to it, but it is a very similar approach to what the NCAA and its Sports Science Institute has taken in other areas like concussion, where it will release, based on scientific findings uh, and our best medical knowledge, these are best practices we highly recommend you adhere to. And here here you go, members have it, digest it, uh, tweak your policies accordingly, uh, and, it, and it puts the onus on each school to read them, to learn them, to synthesize them, and to, to take any actions necessary to try to adhere to them. One of the, the
0: more difficult things to do, is, you know, when you're dealing with entities and, and within that entity, folks have carved out their own niches, their own domain, mm-hmm. if you will, their own fiefdoms. One of the more difficult things to do is to get them to be willing to give up their domain. Uh, the argument is would be for the betterment of the profession. Right. But there's still a, a reluctance there. Personally and professionally, to say, okay, I'll walk away. You take over. Mm-hmm. Here. Do you get a, a sense that this profession is
1: at least moving in that direction? I think the vast majority is and, and wants, uh, just in the social media feedback after the piece came out, I saw a ton of strength coaches saying, hey, this, this is identifying some issues in our profession and let's all work together to, to help solve them. Because like I said, a majority of them do it right and they, and they want their profession to be viewed in a, in a good light as it should. Uh, but I think where you're going to run into some trouble uh, is asking the sport coaches themselves to relinquish that, that control, right? Uh, the strength coach is so important to them, particularly at the big, big levels, at the highest levels of D1.
0: And in, and in fairness to the coaches, it, it's, it's people talk about, well, they make so much money. They do. But I think you probably agree with me. The patience is no longer there for coaches. If Certainly. you don't win right away, right. you're gone. Right. So from that perspective, I guess I could see if I was a sport coach why I'd say, look, if I can't get my guys bigger, stronger, faster, better mm-hmm. – I'm out here. I'm out the door. So this is the guy I've chosen to do it, and he's my
1: guy. Right. Exactly. And that's something that's hugely important to them. As we said, they spend so much. The strength coaches spend so much time with these kids that it's it's huge for the sport coach to be able to to trust that guy, that he'll adhere to the type of program that the coach wants. Um, but I think inevitably those conversations are going to have to take place. I spoke with. Bob Bowlesby, uh, uh, commissioner of the Big 12 uh, for the piece, and he said that that's a conversation that has started to take place in his role uh, on the Football Oversight Committee and then his role as a conference commissioner where they, they're understanding now the need to have these kind of clear lines of separation so that maybe it, it limits the, the cultural sway that can be held over these workouts.
0: Well, Brian, given the significance that, that these figures play in the world of, of college sports, especially D1 football, uh, the article was a very revealing look at, at, at an area that needs to have a good hard look. Again, as you said, vast majority of folks doing marvelous jobs, but we can get better. Certainly. Um, and yeah. when you're talking about literally the lives of student-athletes being on the line, it's, it's necessary to get better. So it was a, a great, thoughtful, uh, revealing and compelling piece, and, and we appreciate you spending some time talking with us. Thanks, Thanks for having me on. And our thanks once again to Brian Bernsett, Champion Magazine associate editor. And again, the article took place or was, it can be found in the summer 2018 issue of Champion Magazine. That does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll look forward to talking with you again real soon.